Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 43. Today we speak to Dr. Jeffrey S. Kupperman, who is a scholar, an artist, and a maker of things esoteric. Dr. Kupperman earned his PhD in philosophy from the University of Liverpool in 2008 and has since taught philosophy, ethics, and theology, to name just a few subjects, and has written numerous very interesting articles that you can find on academia.edu. Of course, he is the author of Living Theurgy, as well as his new book, A Theurgist's Book of Hours. Both are highly recommended, and both are through Avalonia Press. This episode sort of builds on our last conversation with Jack Grail, where we talked about divine emanations and epiphanies of the gods, the trains and chains of the gods, which include the angels, diamonds, and spirits which are associated with those gods, and the idea that we can plug into those divine series or strains and become vehicles for divine will, so to speak. And in this episode, we are certainly focused on the Neoplatonic perspective, but these aren't necessarily ideas, concepts, and practices that live in a bubble and are separate from other ways of viewing and participating in reality. I mean, if you look at certain Egyptian theologies, you can see parallels in that, in that you may have an ineffable, invisible a moon at the top quote-unquote, which presents itself as a moon Kemetef beneath the waters of noon, which can present itself as a moon Sobek as he penetrates the surface of the waters of noon, and then as the fiery Amun Irita Ta as the cosmos itself, or the architect of the cosmos. All are essentially versions of a moon specific to the moment and the dimension that they participate in. And there are obvious parallels there to the cosmology of the Corpus Hermeticum. Um, none of this is entirely foreign or incompatible at all in the way that the Platonic theurgists viewed such things. An angel can be seen as a god participating distally from, from its source. Jesus can be seen as God participating as man, or vice versa, depending on your perspective. Uh, also, many of the practices and ideas are very similar to ideas found in esoteric Buddhism as well. So while we like to keep things very neatly separated by geography and culture, the reality is that ancient theologians, philosophers, and sorcerers didn't necessarily think that way. Of course, these are just my ramblings, and you are free to choose your own adventure. We reserve the right to be wrong and change opinions as we continue our own learning on this show. Thank you to all of our new and longtime Patreon supporters. You are very much appreciated. If you would like to help support us, just go over to Patreon, sign up, and and uh, do what feels right to you. Uh, one more thing. I'm not sure about the sound quality on this episode. I'm sure it's fine. I'm just super picky about it. Um, it might be a little weird in places, but bear with me as I am a complete amateur and it's a constant work in progress. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius, and may the merits we accumulate be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. 
So this is the uh, morning prayer for the current uh, lunar month that we are in, in, in my, my calendar system. Most holy lady, protectress and savior, listen to our prayer. Great lady of courage in battle who guards the way from above to below, heed us. O divine foresight and counselor who offers souls respite from evil, be near us. From you is the source of wisdom by which all may plot a safe course. Your realm holds the stuff of the chariots which all divinities ride. For you bring safety and prudence to the virtuous. You who are the one who pours the libations of victory, let us be victorious over the trials of generation. You who lay concealed in a garment of mystery and intelligible armor, make us invulnerable to the virtuous temptations. You whose spear and bow destroy evil, Give us a full measure of peace as we return to the source of all. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. All right. We are here with a very distinguished guest, an athlete of the fire, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kupperman. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Yeah, you've you've put out a lot of great stuff, and it's definitely due, due time that we that we had you on and kind of picked your brain about things. So. Uh, again, thanks for coming on. So maybe we should start with a little bit about yourself. And the subject is going to be uh, kind of a general theurgic uh, conversation. And uh, we're going to get into your new book. So uh, maybe let us know a little bit about yourself and how you got into theurgy. Introducing myself is possibly my least favorite thing to do besides poking my eyes out with a hot poker. <laughs> but we'll try to figure something out. Um, so I'm Jeffrey. Um, you may have known me from such great hits as the journal of the Western mystery tradition, uh, which I published for almost a decade, almost 15 years, I think. And my previous book, Theurgist book of hours, uh, my, or my previous book words are hard, um, living theurgy and my new book, um, Theurgist book of hours. I have a background in religious studies and philosophy, which I used to teach, to generally unwilling freshmen. Nice. Okay, that is a fine introduction. Um, and so how did you get involved with theurgy? You know, it actually stemmed from like a 10-year study of Jewish Kabbalah. So when, you know, from like the golden dawn, like almost everyone does who sort of gets into the Jewish Kabbalah. And then, you know, well, this is interesting, but there's so much more when you start reading like uh, Gigatia's Gates of Lights and, and things like that, which is my top-down number one recommended book on the Sephirot. If you want to understand the Sephirot, go read uh, Gigatia's Sha'are Ora or the Gates of Light. It's still in publication somewhere, I'm sure. But beyond that, the more I'm reading this, I'm going, well, this is cool. I'm going to take a break from this now and I'm going to read some other stuff because you can only read so much of the same thing for so long. Uh, and I had, you know, I'm looking at says Demysterious uh, and uh, Dr. Greg Shaw's uh, Theurgy of the Soul, which I also highly, highly, highly recommend. My None of my books would have been written without without that. Oh, we're a huge Greg, we're a huge Greg Shaw cheerleaders here. <laughs> yeah. It's hard not to be, really. Um, especially if you're into, into Neoplatonism, because he is such a champion for it as a, as a serious uh, topic of study. And so as I'm reading sort of both of these back and forth and then reading Demysterious like another four times so I can understand 
any of it because it's it's a dense book of not it's not written for like us it's written for you know yeah look it's the students um, so you would have had your uh, background in Pythagoreanism and then Aristotelianism and then Platonism and then he would teach you theology and then he would teach you about theurgy so this is like late study if you're you know cool enough to get to that level sort of thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, it took a few times uh, reading it. But the more I read it and the more I read Shaw and, and sort of the peripheral things, you know, you know, all this Kabbalah stuff seems heavily influenced by, by the Neoplatonists um, directly or, or indirectly. And I'm sort of one of those people who likes to get to, to roots of things. It's like, this is cool. I'm going to go study this now. And then that's what I did for like five years. Um, but a lot of that extra study came about actually when I started writing Living Theurgy, which originally was actually going to be a grimoire, mm. maybe a Neoplatonic grimoire. And so I had a backstory. There was going to be sort of like a mythological backstory where I was writing in the character of Abamon, or I was writing the character of Abamon student. Abamon is the character that Iamblichus takes on in Demysterious, he's writing as this Egyptian priest who was the master of this student of his who Porfiry wrote a letter to asking these questions about theurgy. So I was going to pose as, you know, the student 20 years later, having now become a master of, of theurgy. And then so I started trying to write this book and going, well, I need to understand this better. Okay, here's six months more research. Uh, I need to understand this better. Here's another eight months more research. Okay, so the 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 grimoire thing isn't going to work. Let's start at the beginning, and we'll do philosophy, we'll do theology, we'll do theology, we'll do a set uh, course, and that's what became Living Theology. Great, and it's an awesome book. And what we love about what you're doing is right from the start in that book, as well as your new book, it's very clear that your focus is practice. Um, right from the beginning, like page one, almost, um, you, you know, you definitely come at it from a scholarly perspective, but to me, it's very clear that the focus is practice. And, uh, I think that's great. There's not enough of that. Yeah. I, I live in this sort of weird gray area of scholar practitioner, which is only kind of just becoming acceptable in the Academy and really only in certain areas. Um, uh, new religious movements, especially in the area of like modern paganisms, you're, you're getting more pagans who are scholars studying their own forms of paganism. Um, there are probably ceremonial magicians studying ceremonial magic academically, but I'm pretty sure none of them are uh, being particularly loud about their practice. Uh, that, that's not quite on the uh, socially acceptable scale in, in the academic world at this point. So not much you can do about that. But yeah, practice was, is my, my main focus in all of these. None of these things are really at all useful, I think, if you don't use them. And that, and that was always, you know, from the old academy through the closing of the academy. That was the point. This wasn't just a place where you came and learned a bunch of mental exercises and kicked over people's mental sandcastles. You were here to learn to live a life. And that was true of, you know, classical philosophy in general. 
And I think that point couldn't be more important um, because today there's definitely a divorce um, between the um, theoretical understanding of these subjects and the, the practice of it. And I mean, people like you are helping to spearhead a movement in a new direction of embracing the engagement with these uh, ideas as more than just intellectual exercises. Right. I mean, they were meant to be lived and not just practiced, but lived. Uh, the divorce probably comes around the beginning of the Enlightenment, where we're now putting things into boxes and we sort of get a, a real academia you know, separate from, you know, even Ficino, who is, you know, an absolute genius, probably wouldn't have qualified as a really good academic in like modern terms. I mean, he 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 did make things up. <laughs> he added things to his translations that 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 he liked. Um, but he was still also very much a this is the sort of stuff that we're supposed to practice. And certainly in the modern academy, we get away from that. But to be fair, you can't really teach how to live a life in college. Hey, no one's going to take that class. No one's going to let you teach that class. Uh, so it's not really, you know, the philosophy department's fault on this. It's just the way modern academia is, is sort of set up. But I'm not writing this in, in sort of the, you know, the, the venue uh, uh, of the, the academy, as it were, um, which gives me uh, a lot more to, to play with. So yeah, go do the thing, um, which again is, is difficult because if you're reading Plato, it's not at all obvious from the text itself as to how you would necessarily put all of this into life. You know, um, the, the written bits of Plato that we have, which I mean is a significant corpus, certainly, isn't all of what you're going to get in the academy by any means. There is a generally, I think, accepted understanding that there are oral teachings. And there almost would have to be because you can't spend, I, mean, I guess you could, you have know, spend the next 20 years studying the Republic. You probably mm -hmm. could um, academically or intellectually, but you should also be going out and doing stuff. And, and that was, you know, the point that the Academy produced, especially politicians and politicians from like Aristotle's understanding of a politician, which was a person who so understood the nature of the human soul that they could go out and help people become the best humans that they can be so far as possible. You know, that that's what a politician was supposed to be from, from Aristotle's point of view, which we may or may not do anymore. Um, so this, this, this practice is, is sort of in, important. But when it comes to theurgy, it's not just philosophical practice, the philosophical life, philosophical life, and I don't mean just to, to demean it in any way, because leaving, leading a philosophical life in any of the classical schools isn't exactly easy. It, okay, maybe Epicureanism, but, you know, the Stoics, the Platonists, and the Stoics, you know, consider themselves coming out of, out of Socrates as well. You know, they live their very sort of stringent intellectual, philosophical, ethical lives, and the Epicureans did as well to, to very varying degrees that required both intellectual discipline, but also sort of this physical, mental, emotional discipline that you had to apply uh, every day. 
but then theurgy wanted to do other things because theurgy has a very definite religious aspect to it. Later Platonism, Neoplatonism, whatever you want to call it, is often referred to as religious Platonism. And so what it seems to be the case is that Iamblichus would have taught theology, the proper understanding of the gods, the proper way to worship the gods. Uh, he's thought to have written at least two books about the called On the Gods, one being Pythagorean uh, and one possibly being Syrian. He was considered an expert on Syrian religion, which is where he was from. So he would have taught you how to lead a religious life, not just a philosophical life. And my guess would be, though there's no hard evidence for it, that these things would in no way be two separate things. You weren't doing the philosophical stuff over here and doing the religious over here. One, I think, invariably would have fed into and informed the other in both directions. And then once you could you know, engage with the gods, even just on, you know, the, the, the a non-theurgic level, a, a, an exoteric level, the, the level that, you know, everyone's going to the temple and making sacrifices and doing prayers publicly. Once you had a proper understanding and practice of that, then you could start engaging in, in sort of the basic theurgical practices of, of both theurgic prayer, but also theurgic purification, which have been sort of like the, the basic practices before you really got to do anything else and that you continue to do pretty much throughout your theurgic uh, career you never became pure enough as it were except at like those top top levels of the theurgic sage uh, that i usually uh, call it uh dr shaw uh, compares them to like bodhisattvas like the high bang bodhisattvas where you know they're they, they they've all but attained enlightenment and they're here to to help other people obtain obtain enlightenment as well. At that level, you might be, you know, perfectly pure because you're engaging in the body in an entirely different way than us sort of plebes are are doing it on the daily level. So that's a very very sort of broad overview of all the stuff that I then tried to put into like a, a ninety thousand word book. You are muted. It had to happen. It had to happen at least once. Uh, I wish it would happen forever. I feel the love. Very nice summary. Thank you for that. Um, so, so you mentioned all these kind of prerequisites prior to really engaging with theurgy. On a practical sense, uh, for modern practitioners or uh, modern modern people, what do you feel like is adequate? Uh, level of prerequisites to start with a theurgic practice? Really kind of what I lay out in, in living theurgy, you know, get a basic philosophical life, have an understanding of some of these basic philosophical things, you know, beauty, love, good and evil. In a practical way, you know, how do they actually influence your lives? How do you see them in the world? How do, how do you know, the cardinal virtues and the lesser virtues inform virtues, virtues inform your life. So, uh, I mean, it's not necessarily anything profound. It, it's something that you would, much of what you would get, you know, in a philosophy 101 class, um, information-wise. Uh, but then there is sort of the, the putting into practice. You know, I write these these exercises, some of them are like Lectio Divina, uh, some of their meditational practice or visualizations and things like that. So that's not like I'm asking you 
to have memorized the corpus of Plato and Aristotle and, and you know, understand it in the, in the original classical Greek and things like that. I don't think that's necessary by any means, though. It wouldn't hurt. Having read some Plato and Aristotle certainly helps. You know, I make enough reference, you know, to the Phaedo and the Phaedrus and Timaeus and things like that. Uh, so at least having given them a glance uh, is certainly helpful, but I don't know that you need to be a, a Platonic scholar uh, um, by by any means. And then having a basic religious practice. I mean, theurgy is inherently religious. It, it is about you know, dealing with the nature of the soul, which is a, a minor divinity in the Platonic or the Neoplatonic sort of chain of being, um, and how it's connected to everything else that's above it within that chain, as well as how it's supposed to then interact with uh, the, the manifest world. And so this sort of starts really with prayer. And because it's very clear on this that Fergie cannot take place without prayer. Um, it is the most important element of theurgic practice, even more so than, than say, sacrifice. And the Amicus was definitely into still doing like animal sacrifice and, and such, as, as would have been still fairly common and in his time, though, uh, it sort of started getting phased out around his time for the next hundred years or so, even, even within you know, the, the Greek pagan culture of, of the time. So even if you're not like super religious, you know, which is cool. I, you know, I, I'm not, and I'm a priest. So, you know, take that for, for what you will. But, you know, prayer is a, is a fairly simple thing uh, that you can start with. Um, it's one of those things that even if you don't entirely believe it, there are psychological and, and emotional benefits to engaging in the practice over time. Um, and my experience with like daemons and things like that, very often the, the first thing they tell you, tell you if you don't have a prayer practice that dude, you should pray more. And then they won't necessarily talk to you again until you've done that. Um, so, cause it, prayer is anagogic in nature. It's something that, that raises the soul upwards uh, towards the heroes and the daemons and the angels and the archangels and the, the various panoplies of gods upwards towards the forms and the one. May I uh, pause you for a minute? I just want for our listenership, most of them understand what uh, ana anagogic means or anagoge, but can you just pause and define that for those of them who may be new to that term? Right. Um, in, in the simplest form, it means to, to, to lift up, to, to raise up. Uh, in the Platonic or the Neoplatonic sense, or the theurgic sense, it is a spiritual lifting upwards toward of the soul towards that which is above it, like ontologically in, in the realm of being. Uh, importantly, it is not a change in the nature of the soul. Uh, Platonism has a very uh, hard ontology. Ontology is the study of being, the study of what exists. Uh, and in Platonism, things are exactly what they are. And they never change from being that. So like in some new age systems, you, you can become an angel. And the Platonists are like, no, that's, that's not a thing. You're a soul and you'll always be a soul. Be the best soul that you can be. But you can engage with higher beings. You can commune with higher beings. You can divinize the soul to its fullest extent so that it is the 
souliest soul that it can be uh, for, for lack of better terms. Um, and that's what, what anagogy is uh, in, in this sense. And that's really what theurgy is about doing as well, is about purifying the soul to such an extent that it is itself as perfectly as it can be. So would you say that um, religion is both a method of communication with anterior um, elements of the hierarchical chain of being and also a method of purification and reification and elevation of the soul? Yes. Yes, I would. That, that's a much shorter way than I would have put it. So probably better. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I think it's important that people understand religion, A, is not a bad word, B, has more to do with a pragmatic approach to our own uh, soul development, and C, um, is not the soul, it's not solely owned by Abrahamic, Abrahamic religions. I think in the West, we often tend to we're, we we're raised within this culture um, that gives precedence to these religions and so then some people I, spe- I think especially people who then choose to identify as pagan which in itself is a word fraught with difficulties um, but I think those people then tend to reject the idea of religion without really understanding that religion is a fundamental human impulse which according to at least as I understand it the 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 philosophers were discussing um, is also something that was implanted in the human being by the gods um, as as an impulse to lead us back towards the gods. Yeah, and Hamilton uh, actually touches on that in, in *De Mysterious*. In one of Porphyry's questions, which, which I don't recall exactly what it is off the top of my head, head but he's talking about you know you know can we know the gods? And Hamilton is like, well, that's not the proper question because knowledge of the gods is implanted as part of the soul so it's not a matter of learning about the gods it's already there within us um that's huge but, what but, you just said is so huge but but you know to, to your point you know i i was a religious studies professor for about about a decade um and a, and a lot of what you say you know is, is something that i saw a lot of and, and especially not just the abrahamic religions really in the in America, when we think of religion, we think of Protestant Christianity. I mean, that is the yes. main form of popular religious religiosity in this country, and we approach it as though it were this sort of single monolithic thing, which it has never been. I mean, no, every anything that we talk about as a religion—Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever—these are all umbrella terms for typically you know dozens of sort of individual related but not identical practices i mean there's not christianity you know there's not even catholicism mm-hmm. i mean like the differences between catholicism in, in northern mexico and southern mexico make them appear to be as almost completely different religions but they're still obviously catholicism you know the the the, the panoply of judaisms from uh, sort of the, the the most modern which has you know almost atheistic tendencies to it to you know the the ultra orthodox that go beyond Hasidism. 
they don't look like the same religion unless you've actually really studied them and you can sort of see, okay, they're all coming from this thing, which they interpret in almost completely different ways, which in Judaism is like entirely cool. I mean, like the entire Talmud is this sort of text of a bunch of rabbis very politely disagreeing with each other. <laughs> and it's great because they're like, I don't think what you're saying is right, but I'm not going to say you're wrong. And, and, and that's one of the things that I love about you know, rabbinic Judaism. Uh, it, it sort of does that. And you get some of that in sort of like the scholastic period of Christianity, um, which it sort of goes away, especially in, in Protestant Christian, modern, like 18th century on Protestant Christianity, you tend to see less and less of that. And there becomes a lot more of, you know, this is how it actually is. And if you do it the other way, you go to hell, um, which by no mean encompasses all of, of Christianity. You don't see that as much as people say you see that in Catholicism. Theologically, you really don't. Uh, you don't tend to see that in, in Orthodox Christianity. Uh, you don't tend to see it in Anglicanism. In some of like the really old school Lutheranism, you don't tend to see it. It seems to be a much more modern uh, kind of development um, and there are political issues that, that, that are connected to it that I'm not going to go into because no one wants to hear me talk about politics. <laughs> um, but, you know, all of these things are sort of interrelated. And we see that really well in, in Platonism, where we're producing politicians. But Plato is clearly has a religious background to everything that he's writing. Like we like in modern academia to teach Plato as though he's just this purely intellectual being. But, you know, he's also the guy who has Socrates say, you know, I owe a cock to Asclepius, um, you know, in an inherently religious mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, and I don't think that's a one-off. I think that's sort of the, the underpinnings of his philosophy that, the gods exist and we have a relationship with them. Philosophy is one way in which we can engage in that. Very nice. Um, building on that, what, so, so what is the point of practicing theurgy in this way or practicing this paradigm? Um, because, you know, communing with the gods sounds great. Communing with the one sounds great, but um, what is the end product that, that's hoping to be achieved oftentimes at least in the esoteric world uh there's kind of this uh split between theurgic practice and thaumaturgic practice and thaumaturgy definitely seems a lot more um sexy i mean you you get tangible results um from from that practice um of the goas the sorcery so what is what's the what's the point of of communing with the one and with the gods. Right. So there, there are a couple different things going on and the, the thaumaturgy theurgy thing is, is really interesting because Iamblichus talks about, he talks about go as you know, the sorcery versus theurgy and sorcerers from his perspective, are basically people who understand how the cosmos works on a metaphysical level and then manipulate spirits and whatnot to the personal ends of what the sorcerer wants to do. Whereas theurgists engage with the divine will and try to bring about the manifestation of the divine will. 
it also seems very certain that there were entirely practical elements to theurgic practice. Um, Proclus, for instance, is said to have ended droughts using theurgy, not using goes or, or thaumaturgy. So it's not there. It's not that theurgy and goes are separated by technique, not necessarily result or ideology and technique. You know, thaumaturgy, goes, sorcery, whatever you want to call it, is about bringing my will into the world and manipulating the world to do that. Whereas theurgy is about engaging with the divine will, aligning myself with that, and bringing the divine will into the world. So both can have these very, you know, very physical sort of effects. You know, if we look at like the Hebrew Bible and all the prophets who are, you know, raining fire from the heavens and whatnot, arguably those were theurgic activities. They were doing the work of God. So there's there's certainly that aspect. We don't often focus on it because we tend to focus things theurgy as this almost, you know, ritualized mysticism, which it it kind of is if you squint the right way. Um, but theurgy is very much this worldly focused as much as it is otherworldly focused. Um, and so you've got sort of these two things that go on simultaneously. On the one hand, you are purifying your soul and getting to understand what its nature is. So uh, Iamoclus and Proclus, they talk about that the soul is sown into, like like seeds are sown into a a, a garden bed, into the orbit of one of the the visible gods, the the planetary uh, deities. And then that is the nature of your soul. So you could have been, you know, sewn into the orbit of Hermes or Athena, who who sort of takes the the, the aether above the planets, uh, you know, Zeus, you know, whichever. You know, you probably all know the the, the visible gods and you know, planetary gods in Greek tradition. Um, though you by no means do you necessarily have to use, you know, the Greek versions of them, and so. Um, part of what you're doing theurgically is trying to to understand the true nature of your soul and then try to live that life, which isn't necessarily what your soul had in mind when it incarnated in this particular life or or projected this life, as, as the Ambicus calls it, um, until we are sort of this higher uh, um, stage uh, of, of purification where we understand the soul to be entirely distinct from the body, that the soul rules the body, not the other way around. Before we really understand that, the soul, in whatever shade it is, it gets to project whatever kind of life it wants to into the physical world. The purified soul will project a life that is in line with its nature, because that's why would you not do that? This is who you are. The non-purified soul may or may not do that, depending on levels of purification and or blind chance. It may just go, well, this thing seems cool. I want to live a a life of ritual, so I will uh, project a solar life this time around, which may be cool, but if you are, you know, a Saturnian soul, that may not be the proper life for you. And so 
what you will find are, are difficulties in your life. Now, to be clear about this, when we talk about projecting a life, we're not talking about something like what Blavatsky or, or Dion Fortune talks about, where you actually choose everything that happens in your life, good and bad, which is just a really fantastic spiritualized form of victim blaming. That isn't what we're really talking about here. We're talking about projecting a kind of life, but not the specifics of what happened in that life, because there's still the gods, there's still fate, there's still all that other stuff that, that's going on that are beyond our control. Even, even the most purified soul can't go against what the gods decree, because, you know, soul, gods, and fate sort of somewhere sort of in between there and occasionally above there, depending on which story we're, we're reading. So we're on the one hand, we're trying to figure that out. We're trying to then, you know, raise ourselves up. You know, part of this we do through uh, knowledge of uh, our personal daemon, which is sort of like the, the holy guardian angel from the Abermelon working. Um, and taken from understand from the understanding of the Abermelon working, not like Crowley's or the Golden Dawn's understanding of the that as being a, like the higher part of the soul. That's I don't think that's what Abermelon had in mind, and that's very much not what the Platonists had in mind. That the daemons, the angels, the heroes, these are distinct, separate beings that have their own existence, that do their own thing, separate fr from the soul. You know, like the the end point of of living theurgy is this like year long ritual to to uh, in to learn the name and become in contact with uh, your daemon, which I consider basically okay. Now you are a rank beginner at theurgy. <laughs> Move on from there, as opposed to like Crowley system where that you are now a minor adept. Like, no, 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 this is where you now kind of know what you're doing. And now your daemon will start showing you what you should actually be doing in, in this life and how to purify yourself and, and all that, that sort of stuff. Um, and so that's sort of your, your, your really, your concrete beginnings of, uh, you know, your anagogic journey where all of your purification and whatnot, were really just leading up to being able to do this one thing. Um, at the same time, there is a, a sort of downward focus to theurgic practice called demiurgy, which is now where I have to explain the difference between the, the Gnostic demiurge and the Neoplatonic demiurge, because the Gnostics have gotten much better PR on this. Uh, because let's face it, Gnosticism is sexier than Neoplatonism, linguistically speaking, right? Um, which I always think is a little weird when it comes to the Demiurge, because in the Gnostic texts, they almost never use the term. They actually refer to the Demiurge by name, as the Yaldabaoth, or, or some version thereof. The term itself, Demiurgos, comes from Plato, uh, and it basically means uh, craftsman. So in the Timaeus, which is where we really see it, uh, the, de the Demiurgos is described as a being that is all good and wants nothing but goodness for that which is creates. It is the all good creator God. It's not the one. Um, it's not you know the God above God, as it were, the pleroma in, in uh, Gnostic terms. But neither is it like Yaldabaoth, who is the sort of blind, you know, idiot God, almost, you know, um, Lovecraftian uh, in, in nature, where it thinks it's 
the real God and it's trying to get everything else that it created to also think that it's the real God. The, the, the Demiurge in Neoplatonism doesn't have that kind of agenda. Um, in uh, the Platonic corpus, especially um, like from uh, the Emperor Julian onward. And, and Julian was a, a student of one of Iamblichus's students. So, you know, he's in the Iamblichian you know, line of thought um, there's this very solar sort of theology where there are a number of demiurges, all of which take different sort of solar forms. Um, and the demiurge that we're normally talking about here is, is Helios or Zeus Helios. Um, and Julian sort of connects them as basically being the same being on sort of the the, the noeric level, sort of like, you know, here's, here's souls and here's us down here in Kare, and then there's the noeric, the, 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 the level where the level of where divine thinking occurs. And then above that is the level where the divine thoughts are that we reach up through thinking. Sort of the reverse is how we think thinking goes on. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the level where the demiurge is at. And it's going down and saying, okay, we are going to create this beautiful thing called the cosmos. And we're going to populate it with souls so that they can worship the gods and bring the glory of the gods into creation, which is one of the two purposes that Iamblichus seems to suggest that souls exist for in creation. Um, the other reason being so that there are the same number of things in creation as there are above creation. Um, so we're going to create this beautiful thing filled with souls who are bringing the divine down, manifest, and the divine is always coming down to us anyway. The world is full of gods, as Proclus says. But I'm not going to do it alone. These souls are also going to help. So once they remember what they are, after, after they have fallen, uh, as in the Phaedo and, and the Phaedrus, and they sort of forget what they are and they become admired in matter, uh, the Song of the Pearl, a, a proto-Gnostic text, uh, yeah, I think it's connected with, with Thomas, is a really good sort of description of, of how we have forgotten. We've come into the world, we've eaten the food of the world, uh, and we forget who we are, and now we have to remember. And through remembering, we re-divinize ourselves. And as we do that, we can then engage in the demiurgic work of bringing creation to its full divine beautiful being that it that it that it is unfolding to be and so that's where we get sort of those practical things going on not necessarily in obvious ways but but you know like proclus you know ending droughts and things like that that, that is certainly uh part of it but also part of it is like in uh in the republic where and I talk about this a little bit in, in Living Theurgy. You know, in the perfect city, it is ruled by these philosopher sovereigns whose entire job is to help the entire citizenry of, of the Republic to fulfill their nature so, so far as possible. Um, to the extent that Iambica says that, these philosophers, because of how they understand ethics and happiness and all that, can never truly become fully happy until 
everyone whom they are over has achieved happiness as well. Yeah, and I was going to say, um, very I think it's worth mentioning here that Iamblichus is very clear too in his uh, elucidation of ontology that there are there's not one demiurge, but there are several demiurges corresponding to the levels of being in the cosmos and in the universe. Right. Um, Proclus has a number of them. Iamblichus seems to have probably three. Uh, one that's set over specifically, uh, um, you know, the, the sublunar world, who may be identified with Asclepius, may be identified with Hades, depending on who you're reading. Um, you know, the the Noeric or the the leader uh, the the leader of the visible gods, who Zeus Helios, and then this um, pre-essential demiurge, this thing that exists, you know, just below the one, but just above being itself, um, who sometimes get identified with, with Aeon, uh, the sort of this lion-headed, uh, golden-winged divinity of time before time, as it were. And when you read uh, Shaw, there seems to be, maybe Shaw, I'm sorry, um, there seems to be this interconnectedness between these demiurges that they are manifestations of the demiurge above them in a lower level. So that the pre-essential demiurge is itself a manifestation of the one in lower than the one where, where reality exists, even if it's above being. And then the the Noeric demiurge, the, the leader of the of visible gods, is a manifestation of Aeon in that lower level. And then the the sublunar demiurge is a manifestation of that demiurge in the lower level. Uh, in Amicus's commentaries on Plato, he talks about what he calls moments, and that uh, and here he's, t- he's talking about noetic moments. But they're, they're basically three moments that that these noetic beings have, which I think really sort of applies to everything. Um, and they're they're kind of difficult uh, to to get a grasp on, but as simply as, as I can put it, because I put do that so I can understand it. Um, basically, there are things as they exist. They are th- there. Then there are those things as they manifest. And then there are those things as we understand them through their manifestation. Those are the three moments uh, of, I would argue, anything. Uh, because we can apply that to, to, you know, to individual souls as well. We are there is us as we actually are, which we, even we as as incarnate people may not know. And then there is us as we act through our powers in, in the world. And then there's us, the us that like right now there's a version of me, and I apologize for this that lives in your head. You know that is the third moment of, of me, as it were. It is the me that you understand by how I have manifested myself in the world. Our being John Malkovichness. Uh, there's a certain sort of amount of that, a certain kind of inception nature to it, I think. Um, but we can then see the demiurges being like that, that the, the sublunar de- demiurge is the third moment of the demiurge, and we just sort of go upwards. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a really interesting sort of uh, ontology going on where, Things are what they are, but 
there's more to it than that as well. It's, 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 it's kind of neat actually, because it's not just this boring, well, there's the Demiurge and that's all that it is. Well, yeah, it is, but it's also how it manifests itself, which is not exactly the same as what it is in its nature because one's power uh, so this is the Greek word dunamis uh, in ancient Greek, which power, which basically means all the things that you are in theory capable of doing, not necessarily all the things that you will actually do. That is your activity. So there's being power activity in, in this sort of triad. Being is that which you really are, your, your essential nature. Your power are the things that you are able to do because of your essential nature, which will vary depending on if you're incarnate or not incarnate, because there are clearly things that I can do with a body that I cannot do without a body, like have this conversation. And then there are the things that you actually do, like having this conversation. So these are sort of the the three moments, as it were, uh, of any particular being uh, as, as well. And so it's it's it makes interacting with everything really, you know, this sort of interesting psychology in psychology and, and like, you know, the literal term of sukos, the soul of when I engage with you, I am engaging with how your soul is acting in the world. I'm not just engaging with this meat suit. That's, you know, blundering around as we tend to do. And that's kind of neat. It, it, it's not just you, but you are a specific purposeful manifestation of your soul, which is an interesting to think about because then that means that I am too. And so you are, it, you know, we don't tend to think of these things when we apply them to ourselves. Like, oh yes, that person is a manifestation of their soul. That's cool that they have this divine being. It's like, well, dude, that means you do too. Start acting like. No, I love that. I love that. And by and ex- building on that point, I, I love this idea of the moments. Um, even the daimons are maybe the most distal extension of of the gods and the one themselves. You know, we are all kind of connected in that way along all these different chains, in that way as well. Right. Well, and then the act of demiurgy really facilitates the enactment of the will of the gods on these various levels through the human being as an active participant in world formation, reparation, and transformation. Um, And I think that that's really significant because, you know, it's an unfortunate consequence of the digital age that the people take terms like demiurge and then they just start running with it. And there's this intense superficiality to the understanding towards the understanding of these things um, without any real penetration into their, into their meaning. I mean, demiurgy, you know, if you have an internet, your average internet person, they're going to hear that and go, Oh, you know, this person's engaged in evil works. They're they're collaborating with the, with the evil rulers of the world. And it's like, it really just comes from a a gross misunderstanding of what this means. In reality, it's a benevolent, um, positive activity and it's a way that as you were saying before the soul is the smallest well to paraphrase you the soul is the 
maybe the smallest god in the chain of the gods, you know, in the in the sort of chain of being. So this is the way that the god nature within the soul is actuated and expressed in the um in the sublunar realm because the gods don't descend. And I also wanted to ask you um about your understanding of daimons um we we did we discussed we try and discuss the topic of of daimons as well as the personal daimon with um you know any of our philosophers who come on or theurgists and so we definitely like to hear your your angle and perception of these things right and and i actually wanted to touch on the point you made about the gods not descending which is really important uh, and this and this speaks to to that ontology that that I was talking about. You know, a god is always a god is always a god, even when the gods manifest. It's not the god itself; it is a vision of the god. And there's like an entire chapter in De Mysterious that talks about these these visions of the gods. That said, while the gods themselves do not descend, the the blessings of the god divine in in kabbalah it's called um shafar everflow the sort of flowing down of heavenly dew is always coming down the blessings of the divine are always here in the physical world proclus very specific the world is full of gods he's not saying this in the literal sense that the gods are here but the activity of the gods is always present here. And that includes our own. As you say, you know, the, the smallest, the, the lowest level of divine being, we're still active here. And we're part of this chain of being, which the, the daemon, the daemon is, is a part. Um, it's the, the later Platonists uh, add to uh, Plato on this. For Plato, there's the gods, there's daemons, there's heroes, and, and there, there's souls. And we don't get a whole lot of discussion about the demons or souls in Plato himself. He certainly talks about them to varying degrees. And he's got, you know, like Hercules, he thinks is like the least of the heroes because he really functions on these sort of, you know, these, these base sort of, he's very physical. Whereas like Odysseus, who is what descended from Hermes and Athena in various ways, I think, at least from Hermes. You know, is very intellectual is using his higher faculties. Um, so you know, he Plato seems to have his favorite heroes and and, and whatnot, and he, he doesn't really go into none of them really go into you know, like which, um, you know, which of the the which of the visible gods are they sewn into? You know, we might you know, guess just from who they're descended from. You know, Hercules is the son of Zeus. You know, Odysseus is like the grandson of Hermes. That that sort of thing. But even then, that also shows us sort of the panoply of these beings, because Perseus is also the son of Zeus, and Perseus is very different from Hercules. Uh, you know, in, in really, it's sort of almost everything that they do, and the reasons why they do the things they do, which tells us that you know the nature of a soul that is sewn into the orbit of Jupiter. You know, two souls sewn into the same orbit are not necessarily going to be alike. Because these things are so broad in their nature, I mean, they're, they're gods. If you if you try to narrow them down to a tiny thing, you you're doing it wrong. I, I yeah, I'm just going to say you're doing it wrong. Um, and between us and the demons, there are these heroes. Here, the, the job of the hero is to is 
is interesting because they really have this sort of genagogic nature to them. They try to focus us downwards to living a virtuous life in the world. And while that is genagogic because it's about, you know, living the life here, it is simultaneously, and this is something just, I just realized. So in the second edition of Living Theurgy, if that ever happens to me, I will, I will put in that. It is simultaneously anagogic because by living a virtuous life, you purify the soul. So it's this right. sort of interesting going down to go up. Like if you play classic like uh, JRPGs on like the Sega and whatnot, they're always there's always one dungeon where you have to like go down three levels to to go all the way up to the top. It's kind of like that, but without the pixelation. Um, the daemon is really though our our connection to that which is is above us. That is. I don't know the the doorman is the gatekeeper, um, in some sort of sense. Um, that is through the personal daemon, especially, that we learn our own nature and we learn to engage in theurgic practice that will both align our physical lives and physical intellect with the nature of our soul, but then will also bring us upwards through our specific chain up to the God, the visible God that we we are connected to, and at the highest levels, even beyond the visible gods to the noeric God, the, you know, the noeric gods above them, uh, their noeric, noetic gods, the noetic gods. It's, it gets very complicated depending on which, uh, which one you're, which uh, Platonist you're, that you're reading you know, all the way up to engaging in the one in some way. And I say in some way because it seems pretty clear, even going back to Plotinus, that as a conscious human being, you will have no knowledge of your soul's engaging with the one because it does so at a level that is utterly beyond human intellect. So even the mind you know, the flower of the mind, which is the highest part of the human soul that connects us, you know, just scraping the bottom level of the noeric realm from, from the psychic realm where our souls exist. Even if we're up there and the flower is fully open to, to, to use some of Proclus's symbolism, that's as high as we go, you know, in, in an experiential way as incarnate beings the soul itself may engage through um becoming similar to the divine above it with higher beings engaging in um theosis and then henosis you know divinizing and then becoming one with the divine but it seemed pretty clear that even if my soul is doing that I, as a person, will probably have no conscious knowledge of it because it is so far beyond anything that even my highest faculties can actually comprehend. So it is a behavior of the soul rather than a behavior of the body, which is actually kind of interesting. because It's not something we don't like to think about mysticism that way. You know, we like to think of this as though, and I have this profound, deep experience of the gods, and I become a better person for it. And there are a couple things about that that are entirely problematic. Um, 
one of which if you actually read the biographies of mystics who have these experiences, there's not a whole lot of evidence that they become better people per se. They become different people. Absolutely. They may even become more spiritual people. But that doesn't mean they become better in some sort of practical modern sense of, of whatever the hell better might mean. They just become more of what they are, um, which is better in you know a sort of metaphysical sense, but not necessarily in sort of a modern geopolitical, you know, how do I engage in the physical world sort of sense. Mystics are weird. They don't <laughs> they don't people, you know, they don't they don't earth very well. I'm sorry. I, I was going to, I was just going to interject. Wouldn't you say though, that the goal would be to, like you started off talking about, um, become these kind of bodhisattvas that, that do ensure uh, that others are also able to, to reach these same heights. Right. Um, yes. At the same time, they're doing it from a perspective that's entirely different from ours. Uh, again, the allegory of the cave here is, is really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, if for those who are not familiar, the allegory of the cave is in Plato's Republic, uh, and it, it's basically this allegory, oddly enough, uh, the story, as it were, of how the soul sort of escapes its chains and, and goes up into the real world. So I'll try to do the short, short version, and you'll probably have to edit this out because I'll go on forever. Um, so the idea is that we imagine that you are chained up in a dark cave so that you cannot move. You can't see your head. All you can do is look straight forward and in front of you is projected light and you see basically shadows moving along the light. And that is your entire experience of reality. That is what you think reality is. And that's basically what Plato's saying. That's what we, that's what's actually going on. That's what the physical world actually is. It is this shadow world, uh, shadows of shadows, even where nothing is really clear. Even sound is kind of weird because it's all echoing around the cave. So now imagine somebody comes along and frees you, which is going to be really weird for you because now you're like suddenly seeing things on your side and they don't look at all like what you thought things were like. But worse than that, not only does this person free you, because this person is, is really kind of a bastard, they free you and then they start dragging you out of the out of the cave and you start approaching this blinding light, which is the fire that the people are using, the people who are causing the shadows to be cast are using to cast the shadows. So suddenly now you're seeing the things that are actually casting the shadows and the source of the light that's casting the shadows. But no, we're not going to stop there. We're going to continue dragging you out of the cave until you actually go outside where you are blinded by the sun. And so all you can do is sort of look down and you sort of see the grass and your eyes slowly adjust and you look up a little bit. And you can see, you know, a lake and you can see a reflection on the lake because it's the first time you've ever seen yourself. And you look up more and you see the tree and then eventually you look up and you see the sun itself. And this is allegorically the soul moving from the physical realm through to the noetic realm, the realm of, of pure thought itself. And so what does this have to do with anything that we're talking about? You know, this bodhisattva figure. That's the guy or the, the person, excuse me, the, the, the philosopher sage 
who has gone back into the world to pull you out again. So it is this being that has experienced true reality. And then instead of staying there as Plotinus's um, philosopher say, just for Plotinus, after you, you know, ascend to the highest level of the soul, basically you stay in the noetic realm where you stay contemplating the noetic realm and the visions of the gods and the ones for the rest of, of eternity, which isn't really a thing because time doesn't exist anymore, but you know what I mean. Um, in Iamblichus, that's not a thing. There is this cycle of incarnation and disincarnation that goes around and around. Proclus really talks about it a lot. Um, he says these are three modes of staying and descending and then, then coming back to, to your original nature. So you are the sage who has gazed upon the noetic realm. You've seen the forms, you've seen the vision or the form of, the, of beauty itself, which is the sun, uh, which is sort of the visible manifestation of the good or the one. And you go, awesome. I'm going to go help other people do this now. And so you go back into the cave and it's, it's almost a sacrificial thing. Even Plato in the allegory talks about that because you go back in and you weaken yourself because you're now going back into a place where you're blinded by darkness because you are used to the light. And you're going to go and try to convince people that what they're seeing isn't real. I mean, it's, it's very matrixy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that what they're seeing isn't real and that you have experienced reality and that you can show them the way. And, you know, the line between religious nut job and religious mystic is pretty thin, you know? Is this person a con artist or is this person a mystic? And Mm -hmm. there are ways to tell by watching the person how they actually live their lives and things like that. But to the, you know, unpurified soul, it all looks the same. It's this crazy person who's talking about how the world isn't real and that I can know what reality is. All I have to do is give up everything that I know to be true and follow them. Yeah, no one does that. Or very, 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 very few people do that. Um, And I would argue that the people who do that, it's not their first time around the physical world. You know, it's people who have had some of these experienced souls that have had some of these experiences and have remembered bits of it, mm-hmm. uh, which even the, in their incarnate form, they may not consciously remember, but it is still affecting their, their lives. And I guess what we would call a subconscious level. Uh, so that's this bodhisattva-like figure. At least in a Western, from a Western approach, but maybe just generally, unless the sincere desire to benefit others is present naturally, um, it can it can become it can it can become something that ends up being in service to the ego. As far as I understand it, um, by participating in the anagogic theurgic work we are already benefiting others by coming to occupy by degrees through purification, our our proper place in the chain of being. Um, We can execute just by the enactment of our essential nature, um, the, the beneficial 
activity of the divine upon the world simply by working on harmonizing ourselves, purifying ourselves, and um, you know, working within that chain that we are a part of. I think that focusing on an external intentional attempt to benefit other beings may sometimes um, become an act of self-service, you know, like an egoistic act of self-service. Whereas it seems like it's what I'm essentially saying is I, I think that it's built in to the, to the religious process of anagogy and that we don't necessarily need to even think about it. What we need to do, it's kind of like that Buddhist saying, if one is enlightened, we're all enlightened. If one falls, we all fall. I think that simply by doing this work, we naturally benefit others without needing to worry about intentionally doing so, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And there are, you know, a couple things going on here. One of them is, you know, this is why I like Dr. Shaw's analogy of the bodhisattva, because in Buddhism, a bodhisattva is any person who has taken the bodhisattva vow. Straight on. That makes you a bodhisattva. There are certainly, you know, there are bodhisattvas and there are bodhisattvas. But that's very similar to what what I think you're talking about here, where by dedicating yourself to a spiritual life, there is a rippling effect beyond that, beyond just how it affects you. Um, it, it sort of reminds me uh, in in Freemasonry in in the in the Wisconsin uh, Grand Lodge where. They've changed some of the, the the testing stuff, but one of the questions, you know, is, you know, who does Freemasonry affect? And the answer is really everyone. By making myself a better person, I make everyone around me somewhat better as well, and in doing so, they make civilization better, which helps me become a better person. Yes. Rinse and repeat. Yes, and also since we all are, at least according to the perspective that we've been discussing in this conversation. If we, if we all are sort of part of the one and participate in the one and are united, then um, any acts that benefit an individual soul benefit the whole of, of, of the sort of anima mundi or the group, the group soul or the collective soul. So I think there's that sort of cumulative um, unconscious effect that's natural. And I, and I, I don't, when in saying this, because it's kind of tricky, because I, I don't want to disparage people who take such vows or have those aspirations because it's beautiful. But I also see, especially again in Western culture, and uh, I see that this often becomes, um, you know, this ego aggrandizement. Oh, I'm benefiting others. I'm helping others. And then it's a distraction from the work, which, um, you know, there's something I that brings me back to another point that you've kind of been making kind of woven through what you've been discussing, which is the apophatic uh, aspect of, of some of this. I mean, when you're getting into those profound um, levels of, of, uh, of, of the activity of, of the deity of the divine of the numinous within the soul and within the world, there is an element where the intellectual analytical uh, mind has to be abandoned. Absolutely. The mind can go so far and it's pretty far that it can go, but there's 
to borrow, you know, fortunes. To, there's a ring pass knot. And that's that's sort of it for it. Beyond that, maybe the soul. And then the, so this, this sort of apophatic, this negative experience that is beyond experience uh, itself, which is ultimately what the nature of the one is. Uh, it, it is beyond knowing, it is beyond words, it is beyond anything that I can say about it. It's even beyond me saying that it's beyond anything that I can say about it. It's it's that sort of weirdness. To speak to your to your other point, you know, about you know doing the good thing, you know, living the living the spiritual life, not necessarily saying, okay, I am going to benefit others. This actually goes back to sort of like the basic things you actually would have learned philosophically in the academy, which is ethics. For Plato, the virtues are these innate parts of the soul. By learning ethics, we remember our virtues, remember how to be an ethical being, that when one is properly being ethical, one is doing so from the movement of the soul itself. So it is not something that one is going out, I'm going to be a good person. Um, that might be how it starts. And you certainly see that in like Aristotle's notion of, of, of ethics, where you have to learn to be ethical until it becomes second nature to you no longer have to think about it, where for, for Aristotle, you know that somebody has uh, attained a virtue because they gain pleasure from engaging in that virtue, which like honesty yeah, sometimes honesty is helpful, but sometimes honesty is not helpful. And, you know, sometimes we tell the truth kicking and screaming, but somebody who has a, obtained the virtue of honesty will always take pleasure in being honest, regardless of, of, of what the, the, the ramifications of, of, of that are. Um, but you have to learn to do it. It's something that you have to have a teacher, an external source for. There's certainly an external source of, of teaching in, in Plato, but Plato's teaching is more of trying to get the soul to remember what's already there. Um, and so when you are engaging in an ethical life from the level of the soul, you're just doing it. You're not going off and saying, I'm going to be an ethical person. Look how good I am. Uh, because if you're doing that, you're probably not. Um and, you know, I think Plato would agree with me. I think Aristotle would agree with me. I think Confucius would agree with me. I think Lao Tzu would agree with me. You know, that when the, the bigger a deal you make of how good you are, the less good you are. Right, right. And I think there are pit, pitfalls with both, um, you know, both perspectives. Um, if you are, you know, going out and, and like Janice, you were saying, really making a big deal about helping others, there might be some other issues that you're neglecting. Um, obviously, you need to help yourself before you help others. Kind of reminds me of the when you're in the airplane and little masks drop down. You got to put your mask on first before you put your mask on, uh, you know, your child. Um, and it reminds me, I don't want to talk too much about Buddhism because I'm sure there are people out there cringing. You know, we're supposed to be talking about Western esotericism. Um, but there is this tension in Buddhism between the, the Theravada and the Mahayana systems where uh, the Mahayana seem to be more interested in um, uh, maybe compassion towards others, like this, this idea of going and helping others, uh, whereas the Theravada is, is more focused on maybe uh, refining the self. And I think there needs to be 
the balance between the two, because if you are being too passive and just focusing on yourself, I think there are definitely some, some problems there as well. Right. And I think we see this sort of distinction uh, between like uh, Platinian Neoplatonism and Iambachian Neoplatonism. Right. You know, for, for Plotinus, the philosopher sovereigns gain happiness when they become who they are. And the happiness of their subjects doesn't necessarily influence their own happiness. Whereas for Iamblichus, there's a direct connection between them. So I think I think there are actually a lot of connections between Buddhism and Neoplatonism yeah. or Buddhism and Platonism sort of in general, which I guess, you know, given what's going on in Alexandria this time, and we know that there were Buddhists and there were Jews and there were Christians and, you know, Greek pagans and Romans and Egyptian, you know, everyone was getting together and talking and changing and exchanging ideas. Um, you know, it's one of those things where if you could be a fly on the wall, Mm -hmm. that yeah. would be the time to be <laughs> totally agree um so moving moving this conversation along a little bit because we can definitely just keep going and going and going on any of these little points i do want to get to your book your new book eventually here um what are some of the practical ways or what are some of the techniques that theurgists use traditionally um such as you know you mentioned prayer earlier which is extremely important what what other methods and techniques were used so this is the difficult part because yeah. we really don't know there's no surviving you know de mysterious is, is as close to what we have as a surviving manual on how to be a theurgist and there are no practical instructions in it, in it whatsoever uh, the only thing that might give us a hint would be Pseudo Dionysius, uh, where in, in his ecclesiastical hierarchy, where he gives the outlines uh, of certain liturgies. Uh, and, and there are some scholars who posit the idea that Pseudo Dionysius was actually a crypto pagan of Proclus's school, trying to hide you know, Proclean Neoplatonism in a way that will survive. I don't have too much of an opinion on that one way. I don't think the I don't think there's any solid evidence for it. it's a lot of if you squint the right way sort of thing. Uh, if it is true, then Pseudodionysius is the only surviving manual of theurgy that we have in, in really any way, shape, or form. Because because uh, on the mysteries is all it's all theory, not practice. So we know they prayed, and then we know they performed sacrifices. That's about what we know in a sort of concrete. Like, we don't know how they prayed or what they prayed. We don't know how they sacrificed. My, from my reading, and, and I think you get this from, from, from other scholars as well, is that externally, at the base level, there's probably no difference between theurgic prayer and any other prayer. There's no difference between theurgic sacrifice, at least theurgic physical sacrifice, uh, and any other sacrifice. There is this sacrifice of, of this non-physical sacrifice that Iambulus talks about that the highest theurgists perform. And then he never talks about it again. So like, we have absolutely no idea what that might mean. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Shaw suggests it's, it's it has to do with sacrificing numbers, whatever that might mean or entail. Um, it, you know, it might deal with the Pythagorean numbers, which I think are connected to the forms in some way. 
But who knows? I mean, it, it, it's kind of guesswork, I think. Um, so, yeah, we have very, very little to, to go on. Uh, there's some thought uh, that there may be some external connection to, like, the, the Greek ma- magic papyri, the PGM, um, so that they may have similar outward forms. Uh, there was most likely, you know, the barbarous names and invocation of these these channeled, for lack of a better word, uh, divine names that uh, Ambler says, you know, that these are divine names that are in the language of the gods so that we don't understand them, but, you know, they're paying attention when we use them. Um, you know, it's sort of like when your parents call you by your full name, <laughs> that nobody's ever heard your middle, your, your three middle names before, you know, that sort of thing. You know, that's cool in some ways and horrible in other ways. You know, for, for basically it means that I have to make things up. At the same time, it means I get to make things up. Um, uh, and, you know, I I like doing that when I, when I have the chance. Um, and if I just have the basic, well, there should be prayer and maybe sacrifice. Well, that gives me a lot of room to, to sort of play around and, and you know, make my own theurgy as it were you know i don't i'm not going to ever say that like the rituals in living theurgy are this is how you do theurgy this is how i suggest you could do theurgy this is your Um, demiurgic work yeah and as you you know become more close more closer closer to your daemon it'll start nudging you in different directions and and you'll start coming up with your own stuff my stuff is a place to start with because i've given it some more time i've i've thought about it longer than other people have than some other people have and so if you're coming at it new here's a couple years of research that you haven't done yet that you can build off of that's all it really is um and also if i might interject the time-honored, um, you know, tradition in esoteric schools is that you use the primary exercises to make contact with an interior power, and then you ask the interior power to instruct you on the proper uh, way to approach uh, the gods and whatever methods you you go. You know, you make initial contact, and then you request instruction, guidance, and understanding on. Uh, the proper technique. Absolutely. Um, Iambicus is pretty clear on that. I would suggest that the entire uh, corpus of the Abramelin ritual, you know, where it leads up to is the Holy Guardian Angel telling you how to command all these other spirits. It's the same sort of thing. I mean, I don't think at a practical level there is really a difference between Abramelin's Holy Guardian Angel and the personal daemon, which we could get into, you know, sort of the nitty gritty of the ontology of that, which I geek out to, but probably bores everyone else to tears. Uh, so, so I won't necessarily do that, but go on. I was going to say we would be fine with that, but I don't know <laughs> if we have time for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> I would argue that they're the same thing, that ontologically they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just, one is using Christian language or Jewish language, if, if you believe that it was written by Eleazar of Worms um, versus pagan language. Um, and in one of my other interviews that the interviewer brought, you know, like, well, etymologically, you know, daemon and angel mean different things. Like, well, yeah, but 
if it was a Greek pagan using both of these terms, then I'd say, yeah, they mean different things by them. But they're people coming from completely different traditions using these terms. So I think we have to look not necessarily at the etymology of, of the of the word, but what they mean by it. That said, daemon simply means spirit. Right. And even Zeus is referred to as a daemon occasionally. So we can call the Holy Garden Angel a daemon too. So yay being stupidly intellectual. <laughs> Uh, so um, what about what about Synthemata? Sorry to interrupt you. No, go on, go on. I was going to say maybe we should at least touch on Synthemata and the symbola, the symbols, tokens. Right. Um, you know, these are sort of the stuff of theurgy and the stuff of creation. Uh, um, the 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 Synthemata. I don't know how it's pronounced in, in ancient. Neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> um, someone's yelling at me right now. Going, <laughs> you're saying it wrong. I probably am. Um, these are these divine tokens, these divine signatures that the gods have put into physical things that connect them to uh, their divine source. Um, so like, you know, roosters are solar creatures, lions are solar creatures. Uh, the heliotrope is a solar fire. Um, and I, and I say these only because both Iamblichus and Proclus specifically mentioned these, uh, the sort of thing. And the interesting that the rooster is higher up on the solar scale than the lion, because it is the rooster that calls in the morning, whereas the lion is just sort of ferocious and, 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 and whatnot. It is the rooster that actually is acknowledging and praying towards the sun, as, as it were. Um, and it is through, and this is what, what, we do when we're sacrificing something we're, we're trying to sacrifice you know a composite things that will as much as possible connect us to a particular source so we're not just going to sacrifice a bunch of random animals or plants or whatever you know i want to you know engage with hermes i'm going to specifically seek out hermetic things to engage with hermetic prayers hermetic animals hermetic stones hermetic plants etc and i'm going to surround myself with those things i'm going to maybe sacrifice those things so that their essence rises up and as they rise up my soul can rise up with it and i'm not i'm neither advocating no not advocating animal sacrifice there are certainly uh, any number of living traditions that still do it. And if you're one of those, you understand it a hell of a lot better than I do. So I'm not going to talk about it uh, with, with any sort of authority. It's absolutely a thing and it has its own set of virtues and not sacrificing animals is also a thing. And it has own set of its own set of virtues. So I think I have successfully walked the line of being non-committal on that. You're Nice job. I was just telling you a good job on that. Thank you. <laughs> so let's talk about a theurgist book of hours. Yes, I'm impressed yeah. by this book. I want to know what inspired you to write this book. And also, could you just go into its contents a little bit? Because our, our I think our listenership is especially um, geared towards this kind of work. I mean, we have a pretty dedicated group of people who we really love that um, come to our show specifically for um, books like for books like this and for authors like you. So 
you know, um, can you go into that a little bit? Certainly. So I actually finished writing this book several years ago. I like four or five years ago, I had this idea. If you have the book, you'll see that it's, it's, it's illustrated. There, there are these you know, icons and whatnot. I, I did all of those. My original idea was that I was going to do a fully illuminated book of hours because that's, you know, old school. And then eventually it dawned on me that would require me to do a fully illuminated book of hours. And that just wasn't going to happen. <laughs> um, so that's why I sort of took a significant period of time to, to, to actually get it into publication. Because once I, I you know, said, uh, you know, sent in my thing to, to, to Serena at Avalonia, she's like, oh, yeah, cool, let's do this. Um, so I could have clearly done this a lot of earlier. But it actually comes about because I'm still reading, you know, stuff on Neoplatonism and, and, and whatnot after, well after I've finished Living Theurgy. And I come across these two really hefty articles. I mean, they're like 40 or 50 pages each um, on this guy named Plethon or Pletho, Gethimus Pletho. And I mm-hmm. probably slaughtered his first name. Gemistos um, Plethon, yeah. Yeah. So he is this Renaissance uh, Greek, who he's the guy who got uh, the the Medici family the original Greek language, Plato, Aristotle, the Hermetica, Plotinus, and so on. Where because everything else that we had before then were translations of the Greek into Arabic into Latin, um, because. Uh, the early Christians did not have a great relationship with the Greek philosophers, whereas the early Muslims did. Mm-hmm. So the, the ones like, no, burn it. And the others are like, this stuff is awesome. Let's translate it in Arabic. And so we get into, you know, the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the Renaissance. And the intellectuals are like, I, this stuff is awesome. Let's translate what we have in Arabic into Latin so that we can read it. And you get all of these uh, houses, especially in Spain, but also in, in Italy, uh, of Muslim scholars translating the, the Arabic in, into Latin. But then, you know, you're still dealing with a translation of a translation. And if any of you have like read the King James and then read the NRSV, there's a world of difference, right. you know, in them, um, especially when you're reading the Old Testament, where it's like a translation of a translation of a translation. So to have this opportunity to have the original Greek language was awesome. And so that's what Plethon sort of provides us. And that's kind of what he's most known for. Um, but he's also basically a neo-pagan. He's a 15th century neo-pagan, but he's still a neo-pagan. He's, you know, he's born and raised Orthodox Christianity. He becomes a Platonist. And as he becomes a Platonist, he becomes a pagan Platonist. And he writes this book. I think it was called uh, the Nomos, uh, the Nomai, one of those. It gets burnt uh, by, by, by both the Catholic and the Orthodox Church, actually. Um, so we only have fragments of it. But, but part of it is this liturgical calendar reform, where he basically creates a pagan liturgical calendar of prayer. Um, so if these, these prayer three times a day, that, that works on... Uh, basically, it's a lunar cycle, um, and connected to the to, to the the solar the the both the solar and the lunar calendars sort of combine the solely lunar calendar thing uh, that that we see um, 
in like Judaism as opposed to Islam, which is more purely lunar in, in its mm-hmm. calendar. Um, and so I'm reading this it's like, well, this is awesome because he's writing these prayers specifically to be, you know, like a platonic group prayer practice. Um, I think I don't, I don't know if it's explicitly supposed to be theurgic, but I think it is implicitly theurgic. And so I looked into that and then I found a few translations of his prayers and they're horrible. <laughs> this was not his gift. Um, but the idea was awesome. So I was like, well, I should do something with this because I've got like my Damon going, you should pray more. Um, Damons are not, I mean, we have this like view of like the spiritual beings as being these, you know, nice, friendly. No, <laughs> they have jobs and they do the thing, right? It's like our view of the fairies, which all come from the Victorians as opposed to classical fairy tales. These are not beings that you, whether they're daemons or fairies, these are not necessarily beings that you want to deal with unless you absolutely have to. That said, I think you absolutely have to ultimately deal with your personal daemon, and it's going to kick your ass because that's kind of its job. Um, so I've, on the one hand, I've got this thing saying you need to pray more. And it's already started doing this because at that at this point of time, uh, like directly after this, I become the chaplain of my Masonic lodge, which that means my job is doing the opening and closing prayer for every lodge meeting. So it's like, oh, you cla- crafty bastard, you! Uh, and then this thing falls into my lap. It's like, well, okay, I got the hint. I will do this thing, but I'm going to do it in the form of a book of hours. So a book of hours. These come about in the sort of like the late middle ages, the early Renaissance. And basically it's rich people. Cause they're the only ones who know how to read uh, to saying, you know, look, look, these monks, they live this holy and pure life and they're closer to God. I really want that, but I really don't want to be a monk. I would like to remain being a rich person. And so they take part of the liturgical life of the monk. They say the prayer cycle of the monk. And they have that written down. So basically there's these prayers that you say every day and there are prayers that you say during certain holidays or certain feast days. Uh, and you just sort of do them over and over and over again, depending on, you know, the month, the day and so on. So like, let's do that. And there's already a Gnostic book of hours, which is a sort of an example of it. Mine, I think, is way more complex because that's just who I am. Uh, there's nothing that, that's not at all trash talking the Gnostic book of hours. It's a great one of what it is. Um, I'm just more convoluted as a person. So, but Platon's, you know, calendar is also on the complex side because it is working both with the lunar months as a whole, as well as the lunar cycles, uh, the four lunar cycles, you know, from, new moon to quarter moon, quarter moon to half moon, half moon to three quarters, three quarters to full, and then backwards again. In fact, his calendar, the way he numbers it actually, because it goes up to the full moon and then it counts backwards again, back down, back down to one, which I don't do because that's just confusing. And what I've done is already confusing enough. (laughs) Uh, And I actually add a third cycle uh, to it. So in my book of hours, there are three cycles. There is a, a, a seasonal or yearly one that I borrow 
uh, ideologically from Proclus, um, where he has these cycles of remaining and then sort of going forth and then returning back, uh, which are uh, phases of the soul and its movement, uh, you know, from its place in the divine realm, going around the heavens with its leader god, incarnating, staying there, and, and then coming back. And I sort of divide the year into well, four cycles, actually, because I add um, a cycle of henosis, sort of this underworldly cycle, um, to divide into sort of kind of a, a spiritual seasons that we can focus on. And so those, you get those sort of four times a year. And then there are 13 or 14 lunar months, depending on if we have the, the intercalsary month. Uh, because it's a lunar cycle, it gets sort of off from the solar cycle. And so what you do is eventually you add another month in and it gets everything uh, back in. And that happens, I think it's like every seven-ish years, I think, in this system. I don't remember exactly. Um, but I, I, I do include like lunar calendar or uh, lunar calendars to like 2050, I think. Um, so there's plenty to work from and you can kind of figure it out. And, uh, you know, I'm borrowing from Greek calendars and how they're working anyway. So there are those 12 or 13 calendars, which I connect to uh, the 12, the, the gods as they connect to the planets. We talk about the planetary gods, but they actually talk about 12 gods, the Dodecahed, the, the 12 uh, Olympic gods, as all of those being visible gods. They're the planetary gods, but they're also the gods that rule over the elements as well as the ether. And all of these are considered planetary gods. Um, so each one of the months is connected to one of those gods, plus I add Hades, who's not who is sometimes considered Olympian, sometimes not an Olympian, because obviously he doesn't actually dwell in Olympus anymore because he's, you know, in Tartarus doing Hades things. Um, so I have those 12 or 13 months, and then each of those are divided into the lunar cycle as it moves in through its different phases. So you have these three different calendars that are all interacting with each other, because of course you know, the beginning of the soul of the lunar month is also the beginning of the lunar cycle. So there are added prayers that you do then as opposed. So each month has, here are the morning prayers, the afternoon prayers, the evening prayers. You do those for the entire month every day. For each of the beginnings of one of the, sorry, I talk with my hands a lot. Each of the beginning of one of the lunar phases there are extra prayers that you do at each of the beginning of one of the four yearly pr uh, cycles. There are extra prayers that you do then as well. So like at the, the beginning of the lunar year, there are a whole lot of prayers you're doing because you're doing the New Year's prayer, the new month prayer, the monthly prayer for like three or four days because it extends from a couple of days beforehand to a couple of days afterwards. And then after that, you know, you're just doing your monthly prayer. And then when it changes moon phases, you add that moon phase prayer and then you go back to your monthly prayer. And then when it's the next month, you have a different set of prayers. Uh, so I wrote individual prayers. Originally I was going to write 
different prayers for every single day, but that's utterly insane. (laughs) (laughs) But I did write individual prayers for morning, noon, and night, as well as hymns for the afternoon. So there are, I think, two prayers for the morning, three prayers for the afternoon, plus two hymns for the afternoon, plus three prayers for the evening. I think it's been a while since I've, I've, it's been a while since I've read my own book. Um, so, so, and I wrote all of those, all of the hymns are metered. So there's, there's rhyme to it. You could in theory sing it if you did that, which I don't. So don't ask. Um, so I wrote those for each of the months. And then I wrote the extra prayers for each of the, beginning of each of the lunar cycles and then the prayers and hymns for each of the beginning of the seasonal cycle. So it's like 200 some prayers and hymns. I mean, it's going to give you stuff to do. Yeah. And I think there's enough stuff that even though you're going to be saying the same sets of prayers every day, for an entire month, there's enough interspersed with the different uh, lunar cycles prayers that you're not going to get bored with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if nothing else, it's a good beginning of prayers. Like if you're not a person who prays and you don't really know how to go about it and whatever your birth religion is, if you have one, you know, you don't grok to those prayers. Here's something else. Mm-hmm. It's vaguely Greek oriented in nature. I mean, I relate each of the months to the Greek gods, but I also talk about how they're connected to other things. Uh, I noticed some Gnostic elements in there. There are Gnostic elements. There are Christian elements. There are Jewish elements. There are some Muslim elements. Uh, You can certainly go beyond. I mean, I think I, you know, mentioned occasionally Egyptian gods and and whatnot. Um, You know, I, Iambulcus, I think, was fully engaged with the 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 interpretatio grace when when he was when he's talking about the gods. I don't I don't think like for Proclus, who seems to think that you know Horus is entirely distinct from any other sky or solar god. I don't know that Iambulcus is really thinking that. I think he's much more of the interpretatio romano, the interpretatio grace. So that's the viewpoint that I take as I'm. If you haven't read my books, I'm fairly Amblichian in nature. Um, if that hasn't been abundantly clear, because that's the only person I really talk about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you certainly can read it as, uh, you know, a Greek pagan, but I think it is broad enough. I think my language is broad enough uh, that, you know, if you want to be, if you are a Christian Platonist or a Muslim Platonist or a Buddhist Platonist or a generic, you know, non-denominational Platonist, I think you should be able to to use these prayers and I think you'll be fine with them. Uh, I think I think you'll grok them, yeah. Yeah, I think they're very nicely written. Um, kudos to you on this. That's a lot of work. That's a lot. Of, and it's quite, it's a little bit complicated. And <laughs> But it's really, it's there's a lot of utility though. I mean, totally. For anybody, again, interested in living this life rather than just being a fan, um, this is a great resource. And um, I don't know, I'm very grateful for it. I'm grateful that there are people out here doing this work right now because in 100 years, we're going to have this 
sort of revitalized tradition and and it's going to be very rich and those that come after us will be able to draw upon it and build upon it um it's kind of a big thing in my opinion and this is a huge step in that direction and i'm i'm grateful for it and i'm thankful to you for doing so much work to try and breathe new life into this really this tradition that never fully died off and i'm also glad you mentioned george gamistos plethon because he is a very, 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 very important figure um, that is often neglected. Um, so, where where can we where can people find you? Where you know, online and in person, so they can come to your house and harass you, you know, stalk you. Yes, uh, well, I, I absolutely live in Honolulu. <laughs> well, no, the uh, native Alaskans or native. Um, Hawaiians are asking people not to go to Hawaii right now. So I do not live there. I live in uh, Anchorage uh, <laughs> or Glasgow, depending on the time of year. So you can totally hit me up there. <laughs> um, online, you know, I'm on the Facebook. Uh, I've got, there's a page for Living Theurgy. I've got an author's page. I've got a couple businesses. Uh, like I, I do uh, like esoteric vestments. Uh, so if like you need a golden dawn robe or something like that, I do that sort of stuff with the embroidery. Uh, and I do uh, classical astrology and tarot and, and traditional geomancy, that sort of stuff. So I have pages for that as well. Um, I also, and I don't spend a lot of time talking about this, which some people say I should do more of. Um, I am in the process of, or have, I'm working towards developing, for lack of the better terms, a Neoplatonic church. It's the, the Ecclesia Neoplatonismos Theurgia, um, which you two may have heard of. Some of your listeners mm-hmm. may or may yeah, yeah. not have. Uh, there is a website, site, it's the, uh, theurgia.org, um, which has like our, our uh, you know, statement of principles and sort of a catechism uh, type thing, for lack of, lack of a better term. Uh, so you can see some of my more like purely religiously spiritually stuff there whereas if you friend me on facebook and to be quite frank if i don't actually know you i'm probably not going to accept your friend request but i do have you know i have like an author's page you know go i will absolutely respond to your posts and your messages there uh, and 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 the ecclesia has has uh, a facebook group as well uh, that that you can go to um i'm going to be i'm in the process i'm trying to figure out how to get like a group zoom thing together but without having to spend 200 dollars a year because i don't have that kind of money for zoom um so that we can do like discussion of the principles and go into the catechism and things like that and i think i've mostly worked out how we're going to do that so i'm going to try to start scheduling some of that in the next couple of months um, cool so uh, that's some of sort of like the more purely religiously stuff that, that, that I do. Um, on some of my other pages, I to talk about more of my sort of like more Golden Dawn, you know, Masonic stuff. But that's where you can find me. Also, Anchorage and Glasgow. <laughs> yeah, just ask anybody on the street and they'll be able to point to your, <laughs> to your home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Mad Wizard, he's over there. Well, Jeffrey, it's been awesome. It's been a pleasure. This has been a great conversation, pure gold. Um, we want to thank you very much for taking the time to come on and kind of uh, enlighten us and our audience um, with this with this very interesting information. And uh, I'd, I'd say 
anyone interested in this topic, definitely check out Jeffrey's books, Living Theurgy and A Theurgist Book of Hours, if not for anything else, but to start the journey. Um, but I don't think it's it's just for people who are starting out. I think anyone could benefit from it at any level. So nice job. Congratulations. And uh, yeah, good luck with your stuff in the future. And I want to give a big shout out to Sarita too for um, publishing these books. Um, she's wonderful. We're big fans of hers and uh, really grateful that she's, you know, gotten your word out here because you're like a living resource. Yeah. And that's a little weird to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it is what it is. But yeah, you know, um, the books are great if I say so myself, if nothing else, living theurgy has an extensive bibliography. Mm-hmm. Uh, so make use of that certainly. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been great. You know, anyone who's willing to listen to me blather on for two hours has more <laughs> stamina than most of my students have. So kudos to you. <laughs> Thank you again, Jeffrey, for, for taking the time and coming on. Thanks for having me. Big thank you to Jeffrey Kupperman. Jeffrey's the author of A Theurgist Book of Hours, Living Theurgy. He's also written some interesting articles, such as one on the angelic hierarchy of pseudodionysis. His work just seems to be getting better and better. It's nice to see somebody who is so involved in bringing the tradition of theurgy forward. And he seems to also kind of innately understand the underlying basis of theurgy beyond the sort of sectarian quibbles of Gnostic versus Neoplatonic or pagan versus Christian, or, you know, he he seems to really understand theurgy on a deeper level, which is beyond these sort of external trappings. And I think that that's where he's coming from in the construction of his approach. And that's a really valuable approach, in my opinion. We need to see this moving forward. And the only way it could move forward is if people are actively engaging with the material and producing something new. That's what I see him doing. And it's great. And I am all for seeing what he's going to come up with next. I do see a lot of value in what he's doing. And like we talked about in the show, um, it's great because the whole the full focus of his writing is is right there in the title, Living Theurgy, Theurgist Book of Hours, which is a book that is meant to be engaged with, and and that's the whole the only point of it. So, uh, and I know I like that he's just not shy about it. He doesn't uh, walk on eggshells or, or tiptoe around the subject. He just dives right into it. Um, and, and like we spoke about, that's the whole point of philosophy. The ph- philosophy is not supposed to be just an intellectual chess match that you have with someone for your own, you know, gratification. It's, it's a system that you live and is supposed to improve your life, improve your interactions with others, improve yourself. Um, that's the whole point. So if you're doing philosophy and you're not living it, then you're kind of just playing a game. Exactly. I mean, and that's the thing. The whole point of doing this is direct revelation, 
the growth of the soul, the transformation of consciousness, and the acquisition of the certainty of continued existence after death. I mean, there are other points and objectives as well. I don't want to obscure them, but I just really want to draw attention to the idea that there is a point to all of this. There is a goal to all of it. And I also want to bring home the idea that this is reachable for every person listening to this show in some way or another. Small steps lead to big changes. You can begin a theurgic practice in your own home in a humble way with prayer, maybe some incense, pure water, maybe some candles or a lamp. You don't have to be elaborate. What's more important is the internal lamp of your soul set aflame with piety and devotion, the incense of your aspiration, the pure water of a soul purified of sense impressions and transcending the governance of the passions. This is the aim. This is the objective. This is the goal. If you can obtain these things, you can practice the urgy with little material props, aids. And I'm not of the school that says that material aids are pointless and it's all in your head or you can do it, do it with, do without. Um, the Sunthimata, the Sumbola are necessary because we live in a realm that is connected to all of the other realms. And these things are the threads that connect us to these other realms. It's kind of like a telegraph wire, your sunflower and your gold and your, you know, honey, amber for the sun. Those brought together concentrate the solar power in different king kingdoms. We have the vegetable kingdom, we have the mineral kingdom, we have the metals, we have the incenses being burned. All these things come together and form a composite body. This is the telegraph line, the telegraph wire that's reaching up through the levels of being. And you're hitting that wire and that wire is vibrating all the way up to the root because the root is actually at the top of the chain and it sends down its wire, its thread, its web. So I do also think you can be creative. Can't get gold? Well, you could always buy some Jagermeister because there are gold flakes in Jagermeister and you can make that a solar offering. It's also a highly potent alcohol, so it's going to energize the diamonds of the sun. We did a lot of solar uh, ritual, apparently, when we were in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the MD2020 ritual was a very potent one. The types of diamonds it conjured were probably not the kind we're looking for at this point in our lives. Yeah, but anyway, I mean, the point is you can do theurgy. You don't have to be elaborate. If you can't afford a lion skin belt, you can't afford a lion skin belt. It's not essential. But the most important part, especially when you're approaching the noetic and noeric gods, the highest, the transcendental, the hypercosmic gods, is very pure aspiration, sincerity, devotion, and piety, and a willingness and an openness. Even if you haven't had any kind of significant theosis, if you haven't had any epiphany, 
being open to the idea that it's possible can change your life. With that said, I think it's a good idea that we segue into our book review, unless you have anything to add to what I said, Don. Nope, go for it. Right. So I accidentally came across an interesting little book that I ended up being absolutely delighted with. I was uh, I was in a used bookstore trading in some CDs and books, and I came across this little book from 1996 called Spirits Alive by a man named Gen- Dennis J. Trisker. Uh, this book is really interesting. This fellow... He went down to Brazil and he explored spiritist phenomena and mediums. And he did so with a very open-minded attitude. He was, uh, he was not credulous, but he wasn't incredulous. He was open. He retained his critical mind, but at the same time, he also understood that he was in a world that he was unfamiliar with and might have the opportunity to experience some very interesting things. So he went everywhere from spiritist associations and spiritist hospitals where, because in Brazil, there are hospitals that are run by spiritists, people, yes, spiritists, people who practice spiritism and spiritualism. Um, So he, he witnessed psychic surgery and had it performed on himself. As a matter of fact, spirit writing and spirit painting. He witnessed a man who was painting in a trance unconscious with his feet with a rapidity that would not have been possible by somebody conscious. He also went to Toreros and experienced Candomblé and Umbanda and even Kimbanda. And each with each visit, he earnestly sought to understand and immerse himself in the culture that he was experiencing. And I was particularly impressed with him because he was also recovering from a serious illness and was on crutches. So this man was going across Brazil at times, just entrusting himself to fate when he couldn't make contact with somebody, just going out on a limb, traveling wherever, just and meeting people by coincidence. He's traveling around on crutches because he was recovering from a life-threatening disease. And he's being invited into these houses where full-on spirit possessions occurring, where the Orishas are coming down and possessing people, where he's in a spiritist seances, um, stumbling into sanctuaries of the spirits of Kimbanda. I mean, it was just truly fascinating, this account. He also made an attempt to um, describe the cosmology of Umbanda in a clear way for people describing the different kinds of spirits, such as the Caboclos, who are the Indians, uh, and the Preto Velos, who are the the, uh, old slaves, who through a life of suffering attain to spiritual advancement, um, and other types of spirits as well. Uh, He actually, from an outsider's point of view, gives one of the best descriptions, in my opinion, of, of the very ancient and venerable God Eshu um, that I've seen outside of books written by insiders of the religion. All in all, it was a great book and you can get it really pretty inexpensively. I think I saw copies on Amazon for like eight bucks. It's worth it. This, this was really interesting, really engrossing. It definitely added to my knowledge in some ways. And it was just amazing 
to me. Uh, Brazil is another world, it seems like. And I have a lot of love for what I see from a distance about Brazil spiritually. Um, it is seems to be such a vibrant, spiritual, and magical landscape. And this book really illuminates it. I'm surprised it hasn't gotten more press. I didn't know about it. And I definitely recommend it. It was published by Vantage Press. So if anybody's interested in it, Spirits Alive, Confrontations with the Spirits of Brazil by Dennis J. Trisker, T-R-I-S-K-E-R. And as I've said, um, there's plenty of copies available on Amazon. It's worth reading. I think you, I think um, anyone who's interested in spiritism, Afro-diasporic religions, uh, spiritualism, Alan Kardec, you'll, you'll find a lot of interest in this book. It's very good. You know where to find us. YouTunes, uh, YouTunes, um, uh, you know, iCast, Speckler, all those things. Yeah, go to those places, find us, and uh, yeah, give us a review or, or something. On that note, thank you for listening. Um, reach out if you'd like. We uh, enjoy the feedback. Thank you to those who have reached out and given us some feedback. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Once again, thank you to those who support us. We have a lot of love for each and every one of you. And we're grateful to you. I'm personally grateful to many of you who have been so supportive during some major transitional experiences. And uh, I'm glad I'm glad that we're back on track. And I'm grateful for yeah, all of it. <laughs>